We'll hear argument now in number 91744, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Robert P. Casey. 91902, Robert P. Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Ms. Colbert. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Whether our Constitution endows government with the power to force a woman to continue or to end a pregnancy against her will is the central question in this case. Since this Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, a generation of American women have come of age secure in the knowledge that the Constitution provides the highest level of protection for their childbearing decisions. This landmark decision, which necessarily and logically flows from a century of this Court's jurisprudence, not only protects rights of bodily integrity and autonomy, but has enabled millions of women to participate fully and equally in society. The genius of Roe and the Constitution is that it fully protects rights of fundamental importance. Government may not chip away at fundamental rights, nor make them selectively available only to the most privileged women. If the right to choose abortion remains fundamental as established in Roe v. Wade, the strict scrutiny standard is applicable. And as this Court found in Akron and in Thornburg, Pennsylvania's onerous restrictions must fall. Should this Court abandon strict scrutiny, as urged by the Commonwealth and the Solicitor, not only might Pennsylvania's egregious intrusions on privacy stand, and a century of this Court's privacy decisions may also be dismantled. Equally disturbing, should this Court remove fundamental protection for the abortion right, women might again be forced to the back alleys for their medical care, with grave consequences for their lives and health. The Commonwealth argues that this Court may overrule Akron and Thornburg and abandon strict scrutiny and nevertheless preserve Roe's central meaning. While politically expedient, this view is certainly not based upon this Court's privacy jurisprudence. Every other brief filed in this case agrees that the protection offered by Roe's heightened scrutiny lies at the core of this important decision. To abandon heightened review is to overrule Roe. This Court has repeatedly held that the doctrine of stare decisis is of fundamental importance to the rule of law. Fidelity to precedent ensures that our law will develop in a principled and intelligible fashion and that our guiding rules are founded in law rather than in the proclivities of individuals. Accordingly, this Court has established that departure from precedent must be supported by some special justification. But no special justification exists here. Only nine years ago in Akron, this Court invoked the doctrine of stare decisis and expressly reaffirmed Roe v. Wade. Only three years later, in Thornburg, a case that is virtually identical to that before this Court today, this Court again found especially compelling reasons to reaffirm Roe and to find Pennsylvania law unconstitutional under the standard of strict scrutiny. Nothing has changed since that time. Indeed, millions of women continue to rely on the fundamental rights guaranteed in Roe v. Wade. The medical conditions that led this court to uh, create and uh, establish these fundamental rights remain the same. This case, the statute, the parties are nearly identical to those in Thornburg. Never before 
has this court bestowed and taken back a fundamental right that has been part of the settled rights and expectations of literally millions of Americans for nearly two decades. To regress now by permitting states suddenly to impose burdensome regulations or to criminalize conduct would be incompatible with any notion of principled constitutional decision-making. Roe is both soundly based in the Constitution and sets forth a fair and workable standard of adjudication. From as early as 1891, this Court has recognized that the rights of autonomy, bodily integrity, and equality are central to our notions of ordered liberty. Roe lies at the heart of those interests. While pregnancy may be a blessed act when planned or wanted, forced pregnancy, like any forced bodily invasion, is anathema to American values and traditions. In the same way that it would be unacceptable for government to force a man or woman to donate bone marrow or to compel the contribution of a kidney to another or to compel women to undergo abortion or forced sterilization, our Constitution protects women against forced pregnancy. If anything, because forced pregnancy will jeopardize a woman's life or health, the constitutional protections ought to be greater. The solicitor tries to draw a distinction between constitutional protection against forced abortion, which he agrees is fundamental, and constitutional protection against forced pregnancy, which he maligns. But once this court removes fundamental status from the abortion right, there is no logical stopping point. Fundamental status for all reproductive rights, decisions about birth control, pregnancy, sterilization, even high technology around reproduction, may also be jeopardized, particularly where there is no bright line between abortion and some methods of birth control. The fundamental right both to prevent pregnancy and to end pregnancy may be at stake. Our nation's history and tradition also respects the autonomy of individuals to make life choices consistent with their own moral and conscientious beliefs. Our Constitution has long recognized an individual's right to make private and intimate decisions about marriage and family life, the upbringing of children, the ability to use contraception. The decision to terminate a pregnancy or to carry it to term is no different in kind. Both the solicitor and some Commonwealth amici argue that the Constitution only protects private decision-making within families. It is true that the rights of privacy have been recognized in the familial context. For example, in Griswold, the court found unconstitutional the Connecticut statute that prohibited married persons from using birth control. And in Loving, this court found uh, invalid a Virginia statute that prohibited the marriage of interracial couples. Nevertheless, this court has never limited the notions of privacy recognized in these cases as only arising or belonging to married couples. Indeed, in Eisenstadt and in Kerry, this court specifically rejected this view. Nor can this court alter its historic recognition of privacy and deny women fundamental freedoms because, as the solicitor argues, the woman is not isolated in her privacy. Surely, if the government cannot require individuals to sacrifice their lives or health for others or for other compelling purposes, 
It cannot require women to sacrifice their lives and health to further the state's interest in potential life. Ms. Colbert, um, you're arguing the case as though all we have before us is whether to apply stare decisis and preserve Roe against Wade and all its aspects. Nevertheless, we granted certiorari on some specific questions in this case. Do you plan to address any of those in your argument? Uh, Your Honor, I do. Uh, However, the central question in the case is what is the standard that this Court uses to evaluate the restrictions that are at issue? And therefore, one cannot... The standard may affect the outcome, or it may not, but at bottom, we still have to deal with specific issues, and I wondered if you were going to address them. Uh, Yes, I am, Your Honor, and I would like in particular to address the husband notification provisions. But the standard that this Court applies will well establish the outcome in this case uh, for a variety of reasons. This Court has already found that under the principles of Roe versus Wade, the bulk of the Pennsylvania statute is unconstitutional. There is no question that this court struck down as unconstitutional under strict scrutiny the bias counseling provisions and the 24-hour mandatory delay, both in Thornburg and in Akron, the case in 1983. Uh, and therefore, this court must examine first the question of what's the appropriate standard uh, before determining the constitutionality of those other provisions. The court uh, cannot alter its historic recognition of privacy and deny women fundamental freedoms, uh, as I was speaking, because, as the solicitor argues, there's the presence of the fetus. Surely, if the government cannot require individuals to sacrifice their lives or health for human beings who are born for other compelling purposes, they cannot do so uh, for purposes of protection, protecting potential fetal life. Uh, and if this court is to reduce uh, the presence of a constitutional right merely because of the presence of the fetus, uh, other childbearing decisions, whether they be the right to uh, carry the pregnancy to term or make other childbearing uh, decisions, will be particularly affected. Particularly here, as this court noted in Roe, where there is widespread disagreement in both a philosophical and a religious sense uh, about when life begins. This court cannot sanction one view to the detriment of women's lives and health. Nor can the state of the law in 1868 define or determine constitutional rights for all future generations. This court must look generally to whether a right is reflected in our nation's history and traditions, rather than at whether the activity was illegal at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Relying exclusively on what 50 states have legislated in determining the scope of liberty would imperil numerous freedoms, such as rights recognized by this court in Brown, Bowling, Griswold, and Loving. This court has also recognized as... Ms. Colbert, on on this last point, I'm not sure what you suggest we look to. You say we should not look to what the practice was in 1868. Should we look to what the practice was at the time of Roe or what the practice is today? That is, what the states would, would do left to their own devices? Your Honor, I believe that you have to look very generally 
at whether the nation's history and tradition has respected interests of bodily integrity and autonomy, and whether uh, there has been a tradition of respect for equality of women. Those are the central and core but not values. But not to abortion in particular. Well, this court is, is, if the court was only to look at whether abortion was illegal at, in 1868, that is, at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, it would be placed in a very difficult uh, situation because it, at the time of the founding of this nation, at the time that the Constitution was adopted, abortion was legal. Well, it pick, was, pick 1968. You, I gather you wouldn't accept 1968 either, though. Well, we think that the court ought to look generally at the principles that, the, that, that this uh, decision protects. That ought to, to while it is important to look, and, and I, I would not urge you to ignore uh, the state of the law, uh, at different periods of our history. Uh, it is only one factor in a variety of factors that this look, court has to look to in determining whether or not something is fundamental. And fundamental status in this instance derives from a history of this court's uh, acknowledgement and acceptance that private autonomous decisions made by women in the privacy of their families ought to be a respected and accorded fundamental status. Certainly, uh, the, uh, the anomalous posture of the fact that abortion was, a, was legal at the time of the founding of the Constitution and then illegal at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment would place this uh, court in a very difficult position that his rights may be guaranteed under the Fifth Amendment and not the 14th, uh, merely because only the exact state of the law in 1868 is the factor that well, the court accepts. But, but, but this is not an, an antiquarian argument you're making. I mean, you, you would have made the same argument in 1868. I think you would have said the mere fact that most states uh, uh, disfavor of, uh, abortion is no justification for this court's saying that it is not therefore included with it. You would have made that same argument in 1868. I would, and, the, and that is the argument that this court has made in many instances uh, in rejecting exactly the state of the law uh, prior to the granting of fundamental status. That is, this court, if we were only to look at whether state legislatures prohibited activities in determining whether or not an activity is fundamental, uh, many of the most precious rights that we now have rights to travel, rights to vote, rights to be uh, free from racial segregation uh, would not be accorded status because, in fact, state legislators have acted to inhibit those rights uh, at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Some of those are mentioned in the Constitution, like racial segregation. Your Honor, this Court has recognized that the rights at issue here, that is, the rights of, of privacy, the rights of autonomy flow from the liberty clause of the 14th Amendment, which is also mentioned in the Constitution. The, the debate centers on what is the meaning of that term liberty, uh, and we think that the precedents of this court uh, that began uh, at the end of the 19th century and have uh, proceeded from this court to the very present uh, logically and necessarily include uh, fundamental rights to decide uh, whether to carry a pregnancy to term or to terminate that pregnancy. I don't question the, the importance of, of your arguing the, that there's a fundamental right, uh, as you've done. However, there's a fundamental right to speech, and we hear any number of arguments in this case on time, place, and manner. Uh, I don't think our decision on parental notice in the Akron case 
is necessarily inconsistent with a fundamental right. But one way of our understanding is fundamental rights whether, and, and, their, and their parameters, their dimensions, uh, is to decide on a case-by-case basis. And you have a number of specific provisions here that I, I think you should address. The critical factor is whether, as a result of its fundamental status, this court will accord the standard of Roe, that is, strict scrutiny. Because under that, sta- under that standard, there is no dispute among the parties. Under that stata- standard, the bias counseling provisions, the 24-hour mandatory delay, uh, have been found unconstitutional. And significantly, uh, this court has also gone so far as to say that the husband consent requirements, very similar to the husband notification requirements at issue in this case, have also been found unconstitutional. I, I'm suggesting that our sustaining these statutory provisions did not necessarily undercut all of uh, the holding of Roe versus Wade. It is our position, Your Honor, that if this court were to change the standard of strict scrutiny, which has been the central core of that holding, that in fact uh, that will undercut the holdings of this court and effectively overrule Roe versus Wade. To adopt a lesser standard, to, a, to abandon strict scrutiny for a less protective standard such as the undue burden test or the rational relationship test, which has been discussed by this court on many occasions, uh, would be the same as overruling Roe. For it is the, the beauty of Roe, the protections of Roe, flow from the fact that this court gives uh, upon a proof that particular state regulations interfere with the right, Roe establishes and, and creates a burden on government to come forward with a compelling purpose. Well, if you're going to argue that Roe can survive only in its most rigid formulation, uh, that's an election you can make as counsel. I'm suggesting to you that that's not the only logical possibility in this case. Our position is that Roe, in establishing the trimester framework, in establishing strict scrutiny, and in also establishing that the rights of women and the health interests of women always take precedent over the state's interest in potential life. Those hallmarks of Roe are central to this case and are central to continuing recognition of the right as fundamental. Should the court abandon that uh, Did the court hold that even after viability of the fetus in Roe? What the it, court, what do you think that was a correct characterization of Roe's holding that you just gave? That the woman's interest always the woman, precedence is that true under Roe? Your Honor, in under the latter Roe, stages of pregnancy. after the po- point of viability, that is the point when the fetus is capable of survival, the state is free to prohibit abortion, but only so long as it is necessary, or only so long as the woman's health interests and life interests are not at stake. That is, potential fetal life is a recognized value, is a recognized uh, state interest after the point of viability. But when in conflict, when the woman's health interest is in conflict with those uh, state interests in potential life, those women's uh, interests, the women's interests in health, uh, take precedent. Now, admittedly, uh, 
the the question of viability and the viability line is not as present in this case as it has been in many of the other cases that this court has uh, has seen before here. Uh, that is, all of the restrictions that are at issue in Pennsylvania attach in pregnancy at the very uh, beginning of pregnancy, uh, and therefore uh, the state's interest in protection of fetal life really does not come into play. The real issue is whether or not these health interests, that is, whether or not a, the state's interest in protecting uh, compelling interest in health, uh, are present. And frankly, uh, this court uh, need only look to the record, that is, need only look to the findings of the district court to determine that this statute in no way furthers women's health interests, that in fact what this statute does uh, is uh, cause a detriment to women's health submit her to increased dangers as a result of delay, as a result of uh, interference with the doctor-patient relationship, uh, as a result of permitting uh, third parties who would injure uh, individuals uh, who are required to give husband notification, that those interests in health are not furthered in any respect. The Commonwealth attempts to characterize the restrictions at issue here as reasonable. For the woman who, as a result of mandatory husband notification provisions, will be beaten or will see her children beaten, the restrictions are not reasonable. For the woman who must travel 200 miles on two and three occasions as a result of the act's mandatory delay, the restrictions are not reasonable. For the woman who has become pregnant as a result of marital rape, obtaining information from her doctor that her husband may be liable for child support, is both cruel and oppressive. They are not reasonable. To find these restrictions reasonable, this court would have to ignore the facts placed in evidence in this case, which demonstrate that the restrictions were not enacted to improve women's decision-making or health care. After listening to the testimony of 10 witnesses, including those proffered by the Commonwealth, the District Court made 387 findings of fact and repeatedly concluded that the Pennsylvania restrictions will interfere with the ability of physicians to provide quality medical care and will delay and discourage the performance of of abortion to further no legitimate state interest. In particular, the lower court found that the mandatory husband notification provisions will have dangerous and potentially deadly consequences for battered women. Likening forced notification in a battering situation to providing the husband with a hammer with which to beat his wife. Was the husband notification provision the one that the Court of Appeals held uh, unconstitutional? It was, Your And it, it upheld the balance of the act. Is that correct? That's right. The District Court found as well that biased counseling provisions transform the physician from the impartial counselor mandated by accepted medical standards into a partisan proponent of the state's ideology. And mandatory delay will increase both the expense and medical dangers of abortion, yet furthering no legitimate state purpose. There is no serious contest about the effect of this law, nor can there be, for under Rule 52, the district court's findings are not clearly erroneous. Nor did the fact that this is a facial challenge require petitioners to prove that the statute cannot be constitutionally applied to any person. This Court has repeatedly found statutes facially invalid after looking at facts like those present here. For example, in Hodgson, 
This court relied extensively on district court findings to strike down Minnesota's two-parent notification statute with no bypass, despite the fact that that statute had never yet been in effect. The extensive record here demonstrates that the harms are not speculative nor remote, nor is this a worst-case scenario. The court should not demand an unwanted child or a woman maimed by an illegal abortion as proof that strict scrutiny is applicable. Pennsylvania women should not be the guinea pigs in the state's experiments with constitutional law. To find otherwise would totally eviscerate the strict scrutiny standard of review and would prevent federal courts from scrutinizing legislative findings, a central role in the process of judicial review. Let me turn now to specifically to the husband notification provisions. There is little doubt that these provisions violate the fundamental right of privacy, marital integrity, and equality. Beginning as early as Danforth, this court recognized that a husband cannot arbitrarily veto the childbearing decisions of his wife. Like the Missouri law at issue in Danforth, state-mandated communication between husbands and wives violates the autonomy of married women to make personal and private decisions. Particularly here where a married woman is often the survivor of marital rape and where the penalty for transgressing her husband is likely to be physical violence against her or her family members, government has the obligation to respect her private decisions not to involve her husband. The solicitor dismisses the import of the state-imposed harm and believes or claims that the Constitution is not intended to remedy them. But this approach uh, seriously ignores that women will be seriously maimed uh, and that uh, harms will be invoked. It is a callous disregard for their lives and health. While it may be desirable for husbands and wives to share intimacies in their daily life, the concepts of this court developed in the principles of marital (coughs) integrity ensure that the government cannot decree for those couples how that communication should occur. That to decree and direct family life is more destructive of family integrity than permitting families to resolve their differences on their own terms. The husband notification provisions also violate principles of equality. Uh, These are provisions that apply to women and women alone. Imposed notification is, gives a benefit only to men, and as such, they violate the dictates of the Equal Protection Clause. The legislative scheme that assumes that husbands are capable and authorized to make all independent decisions, but wives are not, reflect an outmoded common law view that women, once married, lost their legal identities to their husbands. In the days before Roe, thousands of women lost their lives and more were subjected to physical and emotional scars from back alley and self-induced abortions. Recognizing that, this court established Roe and established fundamental protection for women's childbearing decisions. Uh, We urge this court to reaffirm those principles today, to adopt the rulings of this court in Akron and Thornburg that use the Roe strict scrutiny standard, and affirm in part and reverse in part the judgment of the Court of Appeals. I would like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal if there's no further questions from the court. Very well, Ms. Colbert. Uh, General Preet, we'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court granted certiorari uh, on the question of whether five sections of our Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act are constitutional. It is the position of Pennsylvania that each of the five provisions is constitutional under the analysis that was applied by this Court in Webster. And further, Roe v. Wade need not be revisited by this Court except to reaffirm that Roe did not establish an absolute right to abortion on demand, but rather a limited right, subject to reasonable state regulations designed to serve important and legitimate state uh, Mr. Attorney General, I'm not so sure that's so important. Roe itself said that. That's correct. This does not provide for abortion on demand. Have you read Roe? Yes, I have. Thank you. In our view, the accommodations of the woman's right and the state's legitimate interest in the unborn child is best served, short of overruling Roe, by employing the undue burden standard for reviewing state abortion regulations. However, as we argue in Part 2 of our brief, if our statute cannot be upheld under the undue burden standard, Roe, being wrongly decided, should be overruled. I'll now address the specific provisions of our statute and start with the requirement of spousal notice, which is the only aspect of our law that the Court of Appeals found unconstitutional. It's important to remember, and perhaps more important than in this context than any other, that the petitioners brought this action as a facial challenge to the statute. In this kind of a challenge, it's enough for the petitioners to show, it's not enough for them to show that the act might be unconstitutional as applied to someone in some hypothetical worst-case scenario. Rather, the petitioners must show that the statute could not constitutionally be applied to anyone. We, we ask, have they met that burden? And we submit that they have not met that burden. This is a spousal notice provision. It is not a spousal consent statute. Now, the provision does not require notification to a uh, father who is not the husband, I take it. That's correct. Or notice if the woman is unmarried. It only applies to married women. So what's the interest to try to preserve the marriage? There are several interests. The interest, of course, of protecting the life of the unborn child. Well, then why not require notice to all fathers? Uh, it's, it's a curious sort of a provision, isn't it? It, it, it is that, but the legislature has made the judgment that it wanted its statute to apply in this specific instance because it wanted to further the integrity of marriage. Would you say that the state could similarly require a woman to notify anyone with whom she had intercourse that she planned to use some means of birth control after the intercourse that operates, let's say, as an abortifacient? Well... Could this the state do that? I mean, it would be the same state interest, I suppose. The state interest uh, would be the mm -hmm. same, but I'm, I think that would be problematic. I'm not. And why would it be problematic? Do you think? I think that I think that in, with regard to uh, applying a statute to all women, uh, mm -hmm. that that uh, it would it might create a severe obstacle, an absolute obstacle uh, to um, uh, to their obtaining an abortion. I don't understand. The, the undue burden standard, as I understand it, is that uh, whether or not the, the regulation 
would impose such an absolute obstacle, uh, whether and not whether it would deter or inhibit some uh, women uh, from obtaining well, an abortion. We're talking about the provision for notification, in this case, under the statute to the husband. And I'm just asking uh, whether uh, a different type of state regulation would uh, have to be upheld under your standard. Well, if, if, uh, if, the, if the state had posited uh, its interest as uh, protecting the life of the unborn, then uh, uh, utilizing the rational basis standard uh, uh, that I would submit that, that it, it could legitimately uh, require uh, that, uh, that, that kind of notification to all people. In this instance, however, we have a different statute. We have a statute that, that provides exceptions where exceptions are appropriate. There are five of them. Medical emergency, where the husband is not the father of the child, where the husband cannot be found, where the pregnancy is the result of a reported sexual assault, or where the woman, in her judgment, believes it's likely that she will be physically abused. Now, petitioners have produced some testimony and made some argument, essentially through one expert about battered wives. But the testimony was that some unknown number were rendered so helpless by their battering husbands that they were incapable of checking off the line on the form, the spousal notice form. We can agree that these women are indeed cruelly burdened, but they're not burdened by the statute. And that's the, that's the compelling point. They're not burdened by the statute, but by the circumstance and the tragic circumstance of their lives. We're looking at the statute to see if the statute imposes the obstacle. If there is a battering husband that's interposed in there, that's a different story. What's our standard on a facial challenge, whether uh, there's a substantial likelihood of the harm? No, I think you have to ignore the, what, the, what the petitioners have posited, which is a worst-case analysis scenario, and you have to look and see if, the, if it could be constitutionally applied, validly applied to anyone. And we submit that in this particular instance, the record reflects that right now in Pennsylvania, 50,000 abortions, 20% of those women are married, and 95% of those women notify their husbands. Therefore, only 1% of the women are not in Pennsylvania notifying their husbands now. The act's not even in effect. There is no broad practical effect in the Pennsylvania statute to, to prohibiting abortion for those women. The act goes into effect. Some of those 1% of women will then have to notify their husband. And the result will be they will resolve their difficulties <laughs> amicably. There will be some that who will then take the, there will be some who will then take the exception. Because they don't want to notify their husband. There may be a, they may be battered. There may be a, a spousal rape. There may be, uh, a, they can't find the husband. So what we're doing is reducing that set of women down into several subsets. And the petitioner's burden in a facial challenge is to establish, you see, that there's a broad practical impact. No, they have not met that burden. May I ask you a question? Is it not true, therefore, that the only people affected by the statute, this very small group, are people who would not otherwise notify their husbands? I'm not sure I, I got all of that question, Justice. Well, you've, you've demonstrated this, that the public interest is in a very limited group of people, the, the few women who would not otherwise notify their husbands. And those are the only people affected by the statute. That, that is correct. But everyone in that class, should we not assume, would not notify her husband but for the statute. That is correct. That, in that 1%, not everyone would want to notify, and there are exceptions. Well, they would not without the statute. They would not without the statute, but there are exceptions. 
It was of several of four. No, that only a, you've already taken the exceptions into account in narrowing the group very, very to you know one percent or whatever it is. It, uh, Justice Stevens, you aren't suggesting there's no one affected whose decision will be affected by the statute. Well, that's the point. On this record, which is what we have to go on, there is nothing established by the petitioners. Well, if there's no one affected by the, there's no one affected by the statute, what is the state interest in upholding the statute? The state interest in upholding the statute is the protection of the life of the unborn and the protection of the marital integrity, and to ensuring of communication. The possibility. We're not. But, but not not if the statute has no no effect uh, as a general matter when when we're dealing with rational basis review we ask whom does the law affect and and so it seems to me that you have to justify the law based on the effect of this one percent who would not otherwise not and, and you may have an argument there and 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 it's a very uh, strange and, argument to say that uh, the law doesn't affect 90% of the people, so we're not concerned with the law. I've never heard that argument. We've not, we're not, no, not in any way advocating that, because we think that the law is rational. If you look at the state interests that are trying to be pursued here, the, protecting the life of the unborn, protecting the, the, the marriage, ensuring the possibility of communication, this statute rationally advances it, may not advance it in every single instance, but that is not the test. The test is, does it generally rationally advance the, the interest that the state is trying to protect? In this instance, it does, by, by the sheer numbers that we have demonstrated. Gen General Pree, I, th I thought we were talking uh, not rational basis, but undue burden. Are they the same thing? No, they are not, uh, Justice okay. Scalia. Uh, how do I go about determining uh, whether it's an undue burden or not? What, you know, what law books do I look to? Well, uh, this is a, a quantitative analysis, Justice Scalia, and you begin by ascertaining under undue burden the increase, whether it's a significant increase in cost such that it broadly impacts and prohibits women uh, from having abortion, or whether it bans abortion. I, I suppose it depends on how important uh, I would think it is that, uh, that the uh, that, that, the, that, the, that the husband of a wife uh, know before uh, a fetus that, uh, that he co-generated uh, be destroyed? I think that would that be part of it? That would be part mm -hmm. of the analysis that's done in the weighing side after you establish whether or not, they're not, whether or not there is, in fact, in the mm -hmm. first instance, the threshold question is, what is the broad practical impact? If there is no broad practical impact, it's minimal, as is in Pennsylvania statute, then you reach the question of the weighing that's involved. The, the, well, it depends. I mean, if, if the impact is only minimal, but also the interest involved is only minimal, uh, then I suppose uh, it is an undue burden. If the, if and, and I guess that, that again leads you to uh, how, how much weight you place on that kind of an interest. As I understand it, Justice Scalia, what you're talking about is, what, is if there is no undue burden, that is, there's no broad practical impact in the, in the initial analysis, then you determine whether or not the statute rationally furthers the state's interest. It's a rational basis test in the second phase of it. And under the rational basis test, which would be the same rational basis test that, 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 uh, that the members of this court have applied in Webster, you, you come to the conclusion that Pennsylvania's spousal notice section does pass undue burden analysis, and it does pass rational basis analysis. May I ask you a question about your understanding of the undue burden test? Do you think it refers to the number of persons burdened by the law on the one hand, 
or the severity of the burden on a particular individual affected by the law on the other hand? Which is the right analysis? I think, Justice Stevens, in the initial application, it's a quantitative analysis, whether there is a broad tactical impact here. The fact that it might be... In other words, you say the number of persons affected is your answer. The number of persons... Regardless of how severe the burden on a particular individual. As the test has been posited, the question of whether or not... I'm just asking you to explain to me what your conception of the test that you're asking us to adopt is. It may be that some women would be deterred to some degree, but that is not sufficient to create an undue burden. It's the number of women affected. Initially, it's the number of women affected, the broad practical impact of it. How about as applied to a specific woman? As applied to a specific woman. Let's say there is such a woman who has been battered, and psychologically battered. And so the exception doesn't work in her instance. Right. Let's posit that. In that instance, of course, that's a worst-case scenario. That's not the way you test facial challenges. In that instance, the law would work. You would test the statute as applied in the lower courts, and that woman would then be... And you'd apply an undue burden test there on the as-applied challenge, do you suppose? No, I would think that you would be asking the court to give full reign to the interest that you have. The woman would have, under rational basis analysis test, a liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment, or under the undue burden standard would have a limited right. I would have thought you would look at the burden of the law as applied to the woman. And I think that you would look to that, but you're asking the court in an as-applied mechanism to give full effect to your right. The statute given, it is a given that it burdens you. So you can't just look at the burden in the as-applied context, but you must look at it in that context at giving full reign to your right. And that's what the woman would be seeking from the district court or for a court of common pleas, asking the court in applying this spousal notice section to her particular instance because she didn't have one of the exceptions to check off because she's psychologically or economically oppressed. But in the facial context, I don't understand what you... So there are two undue burden tests. There's one at the facial level in which we consider the statute in gross and decide whether all things considered in the generality of applications the burden's undue. And then we have a second wave of application of the undue burden test case by case so that even though the law facially may be okay, it may be invalid in its particular application because of... Is that what you're saying? In the second instance, as applied... I'm worried about the first one, not the second one. I thought the way... In the facial challenge, Justice Scalia, you're looking at not the worst-case scenario hypothesis, but whether this act could be applied constitutionally to anyone. Any single case, not in gross, to any single case. Isn't that the normal situation? To challenge a statute facially, you have to show that it can never be constitutionally applied. Isn't that right? That's correct. But that's not looking at it in gross. That's asking whether there is any single case where a woman would not be unduly burdened. In this particular instance, we find that there is no undue burden in our statute, anywhere in our statute. And if the undue burden test is applied or understood by this Court causes our statute to fall, then we ask this Court to adopt rational basis. 
as you the think, appropriate you analysis. You think that compelling speech uh, requires any kind of First Amendment analysis? Compelling speech. The state is compelling a woman to say something to her husband. We are asking that. Is, does that uh, invoke any First Amendment concerns? Uh, not in not in, in our view. Uh, this I would have thought perhaps compelling speech would get us right into a First Amendment area. In this particular instance, this, the, the statute we feel does, uh, causes notification, but it's there's a legitimate state interest involved in pr- furthering that interest. There's the uh, doctor to say certain things to the patient. Do you think that's really commercial speech? Yes, there? I do, uh, Justice O'Connor. Why is that? Uh, when the doctor is giving professional advice to uh, the patient, you think that's commercial? That is commercial. The, the petitioners already do that right now. They already tell their patients, the physicians, and the counselors that there are medical risks associated with I wouldn't have thought that was commercial speech. What do you rely on? Uh, and, and Zouderer. And in, in the... And but that's in, advertising. That's and different. In Pennsylvania's general uh, um, uh, informed consent law, applying to every single uh, contact between a doctor and a patient, there is the same information pre- that must be presented, and that is the doctor must tell the patient about the medical risks of the procedure and the alternatives to it. Well, it might meet a First Amendment test, but I'm wondering how you get to, to commercial speech on, on that kind of advice. Well, we think that, we think that there's a, with the interests involved, uh, with the, the, the statute furthers those interests and that it can legitimately require the, hus- the, the husband to be notified because of the interests involved. I see that my time is running short, and I want to devote some, uh, make sure the Solicitor General has some time to respond. We think that Pennsylvania has developed an intelligence statute that fully comports with the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. It's a statute that's carefully drafted, and it's been amended to reflect the teachings of this Court's jurisprudence since Roe. We ask this Court to overturn Akron and Thornburg's strict uh, scrutiny approach as as being unwarranted extensions of Roe. On the facial challenge, where the, whereby the petitioners must show that there are no set of circumstances under which these provisions can be valid, petitioners have utterly failed to do so, done in in no small measure by, as the record this demonstrates and is indicated in the, the, court, the, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals opinion by their own rational practices, which this statute monitor, mirrors. Uh, Mr. Preet, um, because you have a little time left, there's, there's one point on which I guess I never fully followed your, your argument, and I wonder if you'd go back to it. Um, you, you got to the point, you were arguing about the, uh, the number of instances, the percentage of instances uh, in which the spousal notification would, in fact, make a difference in the behavior of the, of the parties involved. And as I recall, you, you got it down to uh, about 5% to begin with who would not otherwise, uh, 5% of the, the women who would not otherwise give notice to their spouses. And then from that 5%, uh, you subtracted some number for those, I guess, subject to metal, medical emergencies, uh, those subject uh, to, to certification that they would be physically abused. Uh, and I think by that process of elimination, you got it down to about 1% 
who would actually be affected by the imposit by the by the stricture of the statute. Is that right? That, that is not correct. Justice. Okay. So you start with the one percent because ninety-five percent of twenty percent is one percent. You're talking about five hundred women. Well, you're talking about all women, but the but the the spousal notification applies only to married women. That's correct. So What's the percentage of married women? Well, your time is up. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Priate. Uh, General Starr, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In view of what has been discussed, let me address very briefly three points. The first is the standard of review, which has been the subject of considerable discussion. In a number of its cases over the last 20 years in the abortion area, the Court has articulated the governing standard of review in different ways. And as a result, there is confusion in the law as to how legislatures, if they choose, can legislate and how judges are to judge in this extraordinarily sensitive and divisive area. In our view, the correct articulation of that standard is to be found in the Webster plurality opinion. That standard has deep roots. It finds its roots in a long line of due process cases that do not involve liberty interests, which, by virtue of the nation's history and its legal traditions, rise to the level of fundamental rights to a free people. This is the process of analysis that is quite familiar to the Court, very lengthily laid out by Justice Harlan in his dissent in Poe v. Ullman, and then adumbrated in his concurring opinion in Griswold against Connecticut. Second, and relatedly, with all respect, we do not believe that stare decisis considerations weigh against the Court's providing that needed clarification as to the standard. This is not a new May I ask you one rather basic question that affects the standard review and everything else? What is the position of the Department of Justice on the question whether a fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment? We do not have a position on that question, and this Court has not addressed, or at least there's no justice well, it's in this Court. In it's addressed as, in Roe and decided that, that, that is correct. And it does seem to me that ultimately that is an extraordinarily difficult question, which this Court need not address, and it need not address well, it in this case. I understand we need not address it. I'm just we do not have a know, position. Does the United States have a position on that question? We do not, because we think it would be an extraordinarily difficult and sensitive issue by virtue of a number of questions that would flow from that, including well, the equal protection and so forth. Well, the Court decided that in Roe, did it not? The Court did, in fact, decide that there is a very keen interest on the part of the State in what the Roe Court called potential life, and, and that's yes, my response. Yes, but said the, the fetus is not a person under the uh, 14th Amendment? Well, I think that the, that is the necessary consequence of Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. But I think that the key point is that a number of the justices of this Court have said that regardless of that legal question, that constitutional question, that the state does have a compelling interest 
and the potential life, in fetal life, and that that interest runs throughout pregnancy. And we, we did not say in Roe that a state could not have a position on whether a fetus is a person, did we? Certainly. The we said that court, the Constitution takes no position on whether a fetus is a person, and, or that, that it does take a position that it, a fetus is not protected by the Constitution. The Court seemed to admit of the possibility of state regulation to protect the unborn at all state state regulation on the basis of the people's determination within that state that a fetus is a person. There's nothing in Roe that that says a state may not make that judgment if it wishes. That it says that the state may, if it sees fit, that the state does have. I think Roe goes this far. Roe says that there is a legitimate interest of the state in the potential life in utero throughout pregnancy, and then the nature of that interest changes and becomes stronger over time. But it did, in fact, say that there is a legitimate interest, and there have been an expression by a number of the justices of this court to suggest that that interest is indeed a compelling interest on the part of the state. Is, is that yeah. also not the position of the, of the government of the United States? That, that is, it is a compelling interest throughout pregnancy? That is our position, that there is a and compelling what is, interest. And what is the textual basis for that position in the Constitution? Is there any? Well, I think that, uh, if I may, Justice Stevens, it seems to me that it goes to the recognition that we all do, that there is, in fact, an organism as just as what is the textual basis in the Constitution? You argue very vigorously there's no textual basis supporting your opponent's position. What is the textual basis for your position, that there's a compelling interest in something that is not a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment? The state has an... What is the textual basis? The, the, the state has an interest in its potential citizen. It does not have to be granted a, a basis a in the Constitution. Justice Stevens, it, it is my view that the state can look out and say... We, as we have historically, regulate and legislate in the interests of those who will come into being, who will be born. It is an interest that every member of this court has said in potential life. That's There's not no, that is a my question. My question is, what is the textual basis in the Constitution that you're going to say there is none? Fine, that's perfectly all right. I think it's in the nature of our system, and if nothing else, the Tenth Amendment, Justice Stevens, suggests. That, that the state can order its relationships in ways that reflect the morality of the people within limits. General There's Trump, a determination to... I'm sorry. Why does there have to be something in the Constitution? There's nothing in the Constitution that requires the state to, to protect the environment, is there? Of and course yes, so. that can be a compelling state interest, may it not? Yes. There, as I have said, the Constitution does not seek to order and to ordain. These are interests in which the state can have, and our nature of government. All the says is that the Constitution does not protect the fetus under the 14th Amendment. It does not say that a state may not choose to do so. It doesn't even go so far. Or that if a state chooses to do so, it is not a compelling state I think interest. It There's nothing in Roe the I think, it, Justice Stevens, it is, in fact, the nature of our governmental structure. I know no, I do know of prohibitions that the Constitution Constitution sets forth. I do not know of particular provisions other than, indeed, perhaps the Tenth sheds light on this, that this is a matter that ultimately is, and I think this is quite important in terms of analyzing what Pennsylvania has done here. What Pennsylvania has said, in effect, is that we will not prohibit abortion 
save for gender selection abortions. Our colleagues on the other side believe that Roe v. Wade forbids that, that it protects that decision. It does not prohibit. It has seen fit to regulate. That is very much in the tradition of the Western democracies. Standard. Uh, you started out to tell us what the standard was. Uh, we believe it was articulated, Justice White, by the Webster plurality. Well, what is it? It is the rational basis standard. And that is the standard that has been articulated by this Court in a variety of decisions and by a variety of justices of this Court in its abortion. And under that standard, you would think all of the provisions that are at issue here should be sustained? Exactly. And so would complete prohibition, wouldn't it? A complete prohibition that had no uh, exception for the life of the mother, I think, could raise very serious uh, questions but under subject, subject the protection that, of subject life. Subject to that exception, uh, it would cover complete pro. It would justify complete I th- prohibition. I think it's best not to a- answer these in the abstract. We look to the specific interests of the state as it has articulated those interests. For example, well, I'll, I'll grant you that, but yeah. you're asking the court to, to adopt a standard, and I think we ought to know where the standard would take us. I think the rational basis standard would, in fact, allow considerable leeway to the states if it saw fit. General, that's not really a fair answer. Rational basis, under your analysis, there's an interest in preserving fetal life at all times during pregnancy. It's rational under your view. Ergo, it follows that a total prohibition protected by criminal penalties would be rational, would meet your standard. I don't think so. The common law... What what is your rational basis standard? It's not the traditional one. Ours is the traditional one, but under that traditional analysis, there must, in fact, be a rational connection with a legitimate state interest, and the state cannot proceed in an arbitrary and capricious fashion, in my view. If I may complete this, I think this is an important part of the answer. It would be arbitrary and capricious. It would, moreover, deprive an individual of her right to life if there were not an emergency exception, and even in Roe v. Wade, the Texas statute at issue there, provided for that exception. It would be quite at war with our traditions as embodied in the common law not to provide at a minimum for that kind of exception. But what you're saying is the rational basis standard, which normally just requires a reason that that is legitimate to support it, can be overcome in some cases by countervailing interest, which is not the normal rational basis standard. Well, may I respond? I think that the traditional rational basis test does, in fact, analyze the ends. It looks at the ends and the means, and it requires, in fact, that the state not conduct itself in an arbitrary and capricious fashion. That is the ultimate insight of the rational basis test. I thank the Court. Thank you, General Starr. Ms. Colbert, you have three minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to address two points very quickly. Uh, The first is uh, in response to this uh, last dialogue with uh, General Starr. uh, Recognition of a uh, state's interest in fetal life as compelling throughout pregnancy uh, would uh, denigrate and restrict the ability of women at all stages of pregnancy to uh, have an abortion. And certainly, in the only exception that uh, Mr. Starr and the, attorney, the Solicitor General has uh, laid out for this court is in the very rare instance where only the life of the woman uh, 
would be excluded from a ban. Uh, bans of small, of second trimester abortions, bans of certain classes of women uh, having abortions, bans that would uh, prevent women who have uh, serious and long-lasting health needs to have abortions, uh, would be significantly uh, approved by this court if the rational basis standard were adopted, precisely because of a formulation that the state's interest is compelling throughout pregnancy and sufficient to override any liberty interest, any interest of the woman uh, to uh, choose or, uh, or not choose a pregnancy. Uh, and in fact, that is why uh, this court must go back to uh, the hallmark of Roe, that is, again reaffirm uh, that the right to choose abortion is fundamental and only when the government can show a compelling purpose, uh, as recognized in Roe, that is, a compelling purpose after the point of viability, uh, should uh, it be able to sustain a statute. The second point I wanted to raise goes to the question of uh, the rights-by-numbers approach articulated by the Commonwealth. Uh, it is our view that the husband notification statute applies to every single married woman in Pennsylvania that the rights of autonomy, the rights of communication within the family, are infringed because those communications are subject to criminal prosecution and subject to uh, independent district attorneys subpoenaing women and, and probing the communications between husband and wife. Are there First Amendment values at stake there, do you think? Your Honor, I do believe there are, not only in this section, but in the bias counseling provisions as well. Uh, clearly, we've set forth in our brief why we believe this is not commercial speech. Uh, but in both instances, uh, the court is forcing uh, the physician to be the proponent of its ideology uh, and, and also uh, to uh, communicate information about the abortion decision. Thank you, Ms. Thank Goldberg. You. The case is submitted. We'll hear our...